Well, it's my joy this evening to be able to introduce a dear friend to you. Jordan Embry and his wife, Leah, have four sons, Haddon, Knox, RJ, who's now with the Lord, and a new addition, Brooks. And RJ and Leah, or sorry, and Jordan and Leah began attending Bethany Community Church in, in August of last year. And uh, you know how just some people you, you click with instantly, right? Uh, that's how it was for Whitney and I with Leah and the boys. And uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, it was true with, with the whole family. Uh, and Jordan is just a, a dear man. I've just really been, I've learned a lot uh, from my conversations with Jordan. When they moved here, they'd, he had just finished a, a pastorate in Washington. And so just hearing what the Lord had, had done in his life and, and the way in which uh, theology had impacted his, his ministry, I was just really encouraged by that. So I, I asked him to, to come this evening and to share some things with us, and I, I really appreciate him being willing to do so. Uh, it's a joy to have him in our, our pulpit this evening. So please join me in welcoming Jordan here. So. All right, good evening. Happy, happy Lord's Day, church. It's, it's a joy to, to gather with you once again for the purpose of worshiping the triune God of the universe. I'm so thankful for this day in seven uh, that the Lord has given us just to rest from the busyness of life and to pause to gather corporately with the saints. What a gift from the Lord the, the Sabbath is and will continue to be until he returns. For tonight's teaching, uh, the title, um, teaching is, is probably the, the proper category. I wouldn't call this a, a sermon per se, more of a, a topical teaching. But the title that we're going to operate under is this, How Our Historic Faith Brings Present Comfort. How Our Historic Faith Brings Present Comfort. We're going to be looking at the historical nature of our faith and then examining the comfort that that brings to everyday contemporary life. And so there's a text that I want to read to kind of get us started. We're going to use these verses as, as a launching point, really a foundation for what we're going to talk about this evening. And so I'm going to read that in just a moment. And then I will pause to pray, asking for the Holy Spirit's help, and then we'll jump right in. So please grab your Bibles that you've brought with you, and open up to the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude. It's the second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. And as you're making your way there, you'll notice that that Jude is just a single chapter. And so I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Jude 1 through 4. And so please stand with me now, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy word. The Lord says this to us in Jude, starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we again come before you as, as one body, united in the truth of the gospel. Grateful for the gifts of faith and repentance that you've given to us. Your saints have gathered together corporately and are declared and accounted righteous by you through the righteousness of your Son that you have imputed to us. And Father, as we gather for your glory, we do recognize that our own good is woven into the imperative to not forsake the assembly. And so might you continue your good work in us this evening, sanctifying by your grace. Shape and mold our hearts. Chip away at the sin that so easily entangles us by your mercy. Father, this, this lecture this evening is a bit unique in the sense that it's not an expository sermon, but I pray that you would still be at work. That the truth that is spoken may be clung to and the error discarded. And might the Christ of the scriptures be high and lifted up, cherished above all. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you taking notes, we are going to operate under these three headings. First, the content of the faith. Second, the historical summaries of that content. And finally, the comfort those summaries bring. The content of the faith, the historic summaries of that content, and the comfort those summaries bring. I want us to go back to to the passage in Jude that we just read, and we aren't going to spend a a ton of time here, but just really quickly, if I can set the stage for what is happening here in context. Jude, who is believed by most scholars to be the half-brother of Jesus, sets out to, to write this epistle to a group of Christians, and he wants to encourage them. He desires to encourage them about the salvation that they share. But it is obvious from verse 3 that instead he calls an audible. Jude catches wind that this group of believers is being attacked and potentially influenced by false doctrine, by false teachers. We aren't told how Jude learns of this, but it's likely that he has very close relationship with these folks. This might even be a letter uh, in response to a letter that he received addressing some of these things. But it is clear that Jude deems it necessary to change his plans and write about a more pressing issue. Verse 3 again reads like this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, here in this context, what Jude's main point is, what his objective is, the the entire thrust of the letter is centered around this word contend. Jude is encouraging and challenging. He's urging, he's appealing, the text says, He's appealing to these Christians to fight, to contend, to defend the faith. There's false doctrine infiltrating. These are false teachers that are gaining ground. Brethren, we must stand up and contend. Don't be passive and let these false teachers prevail. Truth is at stake. Contend for the faith. It is evident that this is Jude's goal. But what I want us to notice from verse 3 isn't necessarily Jude's attitude of appeal Not primarily the the urge to contend or or the need to fight and defend for truth. What I want us to make note of is the giant presupposition that Jude is operating under here. There's a presupposition, a pre-understanding, something that he almost assumes his readers will know and understand. So he doesn't have to unpack it, he just mentions it in passing as he makes his argument. 
And the presupposition is this, there is a faith to contend for. Brethren, there is a faith to contend for. And by faith here, Jude isn't referencing primarily to the act of believing. He's referring to the content of Christianity. Faith here in verse 3 could be synonymous with Christian doctrine. Remember the context. He's appealing to them to defend against false teachers. He's urging them to fight against erroneous teaching. And how are they to accomplish such a mission? Contend for what is true. Contend for the truth. Contend for Christian doctrine. Contend for the faith. You see, there is content to the Christian faith. Historical, objective, doctrinal, true content. And this is content that, what does the text say? Content that was once for, delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. Once delivered through the apostles, given to us in the word of God, one time in the canon of scripture, the whole counsel of God. See, the content of the Christian faith can't be added to or subtracted from. Christian doctrine is not limitless in the sense that every time the wind blows, we receive a new twist. The Reformed theologian of the 18th century, John Gill, said this in this regard. Gill preached in the the same church in London as Charles Spurgeon just 100 years earlier. Gill says this, And it was but once delivered. In opposition to the sundry times and diverse manners in which the mind of God was formerly made known, and designs the uniformity, perfection, and continuance of the doctrine of faith, there is no alteration to be made in it, no addition to it, no new revelations are to be expected. It has been delivered all at once, and therefore should be earnestly contended for. Brethren, the 66 books of this inspired, inerrant, authoritative word cannot be compromised. It was for once all delivered to the saints to contend for the faith. This is the lone stream of authoritative doctrine in the Christian life, the holy word of God. Might we never stray from this certainty? And God help us if we were ever tempted to do so. Now in order to contend for something, you have to know something, don't you? In order to contend for X, you have to know X. In order to contend for the game of chess, for example, you have to know the game of chess. You can't contend for the rules unless you know the rules. Let's say you and I are playing a game of chess, and I move the king diagonally three spaces, and you tell me I can't do that. Well, how do you know? Well, because you've studied the rules. You know how chess has been played for generations. Historically, a king can only move one space at a time. Well, in order to contend for the faith, you have to know the faith. In order to be obedient to the imperative here in Jude to contend for Christian doctrine, we have to know Christian doctrine. And as soon as you begin to study Christian doctrine and further articulate what different doctrines are and aren't, what they mean and don't mean, do you know what you immediately start doing? Summarizing. This is what Christians have been doing ever since the canon of Scripture was closed. Summarization is necessary for the Christian life. It's necessary for preaching, it's necessary for teaching, it's necessary for evangelism and discipleship. Let's just take the gospel, for example. The Bible says, how are people going to hear the good news if there is no preacher? 
And so we are commissioned by God to preach the gospel to the lost. Well, what does God expect of us when we are doing this preaching? Are we just to, to read every verse that pertains? There are five elements to the gospel. I think we're all in agreement here. The, the character of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith, and the urgency of eternity. Is the proper methodology to, to open our Bible and just begin reciting every verse that relates to the character of God? Or are we, to the best of our ability, called to summarize what the Bible teaches? At this point, you're probably like, Jordan, duh, where, where are you going with this? But brethren, Christians before us who were saved by the same God, brought to a realization of their sinfulness by the power of the same Holy Spirit, Christians who follow the same Christ, Christians for over the last 2,000 years have, have studied the same word of God. Remember, it was delivered once for the saints. These Christians who are, we are united together with in Christ have been summarizing what the Bible teaches for centuries and somehow, generally speaking today, we have grown to neglect their work rather than cherish it. What comes to mind when you hear words like creed, confession, catechism? How is it that we have gotten to the point in evangelicalism to the point where these are curse words in our midst? Brothers and sisters, there, there needs to be a recovery. There needs to be a resurgence of the use of historical summaries of the content of the Christian faith in the life of the church. Oh, how greatly the church would benefit from a return to a more historical approach to the faith rather than trying to be relevant when it comes to Christian doctrine. The historical summaries of Christian doctrine, I mean specifically creeds and confessions and catechisms. We're going to get into some specifics very briefly in just a second, but they are what I would call essential to the Christian faith. Carl Truman, who's arguably one of the more brilliant minds of the modern theologians, currently a professor at Grove City College, he said this in an article for the Gospel Coalition on this subject. While there is an often instinctive suspicion of creeds and confessions among Protestants, particularly evangelicals, on the grounds that they seem to subvert a commitment to the sole authority of Scripture, it should be clear from history and, more importantly, biblical testimony that creeds and confessions should play a vital role in any church. And so I want to take the next few minutes and just give a brief overview. If you hate history, you're going to hate the next few minutes. But I just want to, I want to spotlight some of these historical creeds and confessions and catechisms that I think that we ought to be at least aware of, if not contemplating and reading and studying and potentially even memorizing. This is by no means a, an exhaustive list. There, there are many more worth our time and energy. But I just picked a few from each category that... I think we would benefit from exposing ourselves to. And then after this synopsis, we're going to close with some application. Why this matters. What's the benefit? And even try maybe to respond to some objections along the way. All right, so first, the Apostles' Creed. This creed is probably the most prominent and well-known of them all. I'm sure you are all familiar with this. However, very little is actually known about the origin Despite the title, there are very few historians who believe that the creed was written by the actual apostles themselves. That legend was abandoned before the Renaissance, sometime in the Middle Ages. But nevertheless, this creed is indisputably written as a summary of the apostles' teaching. 
It's fairly short, and so I'm going I'm to read this one. I'm not going to read all of these because some of them are, are very lengthy, but this one is succinct enough for our time. And so this first-person creed, known as the Apostles' Creed, reads as follows. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is a creed that Christians have been using to confess their faith for centuries. This, of course, is not an exhaustive compilation of Christian doctrine, but it is essential. It's not an overstatement by any stretch of the imagination to say that if you deny the truths herein, you have very good reason to be concerned for your soul. To be Christian is to affirm the Apostles' Creed. Now, I think it needs to be said, again, that we don't hold this as ultimate authority. The Scripture is that alone for us. But this is a faithful and true articulation of what the Scriptures teach. And therefore, we should affirm it with vigor. Next, the Nicene Creed. This creed really has, has a three-part history. First originated at the Council of Nicaea, which is present-day Turkey, in AD 325. Later constructed at the Council of Constantinople, which is present-day Istanbul, in AD 381. I'm not going to read this one. It's much longer. But really, the focus is the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is at the forefront of this ecumenical creed. And really, this creed, upon its completion, settled a debate over the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because in Alexandria, in around 18, or sorry, 318, a fellow by the name of Arius began publicly proclaiming a theory that Jesus was not God at all, but a mere servant of God. And so these councils were formed, and the creed was birthed out of that controversy. Strongly recommend studying this creed. I mean, it would be a great thing to, to do during family worship, for instance, especially if you have school-aged children or, or teenagers, just, just an excellent resource on the Trinity that the Christians of yesteryear and the Christians still today have been confessing. I follow uh, Matthew Barrett on, on social media. I'm not, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Dr. Barrett, but he's a, a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he posted a, a syllabus of one of his classes the other day, and, and part of the requirements for the class was to memorize the Nicene Creed. I was like, man, how awesome is that? Praise God for guys like Dr. Barrett. So those are the two ecumenical creeds that, that I want to highlight. There, there are others worth your time. The Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, but for the sake of time, we're going we're gonna to move on and highlight a, f- a few summarizations of biblical truth from a slightly different category, and that is the historic confessions. There are a, a few differences between creeds and confessions worth noting. One, obviously, their structure and formatting are, are different. They're, they're used for different ecclesiastical purposes, which I'll touch on in just a bit. But, but really, the main distinction is the time period in which they are written. These creeds were, the creeds were, were written by the early church, combating a lot of heresy that was creeping in. 
And the confessions, generally speaking, were products of the Reformation. As Protestantism was born and as the church began to separate itself from Rome, many found it very crucial time to confess what they believe about the Bible. You can imagine why. They wanted to link arms with Luther and others who would go on to say, Here I stand against Catholicism. We believe the Bible has authority alone. We believe in salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And the product of a lot of these historic reformations, historic confessions of faith. The first one I want to highlight, the Belgic Confession, written in 1561. First written in French, but is probably best known in, in the Dutch translation. The Dutch Reformed held to and still hold to this as their confession of faith. The Belgic contains 37 different articles of doctrine, and when paired with the Canons of Dort and the Heidelberg Catechism, they are known as the three forms of unity. Together they are the accepted official statements for many Reformed churches today. Next, the Westminster Confession of Faith. 1646, it was written by an assembly of group of pastors and theologians known as the Westminster Divines. Back then, England's Reformation was considered by many to be left incomplete by Queen Elizabeth. And so the English Parliament gathered this group of theologians to advise them concerning the reform of the English Church, which ultimately is how this confession came to be. The 33 chapters that unpack different doctrines, and together with the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, these are held in high regard as faithful summaries of the Christian faith by the majority of Presbyterians today. PCA, OPC, or all others that consider these official statements of faith. And I think this is uh, maybe an appropriate time to, to note here that, that even though this is a, a Presbyterian document, we really ought to have a, a great deal of appreciation for this confession of faith and others like it. Confessions are a bit different than ecumenical creeds in the sense that I don't think you have to affirm every jot and tittle of this in order to be confident in your salvation. Clearly, there are some things in the Westminster Confession of Faith, for instance, that we as Baptists would disagree with, chiefly the proper recipients of the sacrament of baptism. But that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is, I, I believe, a, a better confession of faith the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 that we're going to get to in just a second. It's, it's a better confession. But spoiler alert, the 1689 was written almost word for word from the Westminster Confession of Faith. With only minor changes to the few places where there's disagreement. And so even though I'm a, a Reformed Baptist, I, I affirm 95% of what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches. And therefore I'm very, very thankful for it along with the Belgic and others. All right, so the best for last. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, written in 1677, formally adopted in the year 1689, which is why most re folks refer to this as the 1689. Uh, one pastor uh, in our state actually even has 1689 tattooed across his hands. I don't know if I'd be willing to go that far, but I do share his deep love and appreciation for this historical summary of the Christian faith. It is undoubtedly one of the greatest theological statements in Baptist history. There are 32 chapters, many containing multiple paragraphs in each chapter that, that expound upon the main tenets of Christian doctrine. Things like the Trinity, creation, justification, sanctification, um, Christian liberty, marriage. It really is like a brief 
systematic theology used as a confession of faith. William Collins, Hercules Collins, Benjamin Keach were just a few of the, the signatories of this confession that eventually guys like John Gill and Charles Spurgeon would eventually hold to and teach from. And so for you to ask me personally, Jordan, summarize what the Bible teaches. What do you think the Bible teaches? I would be comfortable handing you a copy of the 1689 and saying this pretty much sums it up. There are maybe one or two expectations that I would take, but, but other than that, I believe this to be the best articulation of what the Bible teaches that has ever been written in church history. I wouldn't say that it's necessary for Christian life. I don't think a church needs to use the 1689 as, as their statement of faith in order to be a true church. That's not even close to being true. But I do think that this document is extremely useful, and I would absolutely love to see it utilized more in the life of Baptist churches around the world. All right, this brings us to the final category. We've looked at a couple creeds, a couple confessions. Now we're going to give a cursory look at a few of the Reformed catechisms from church history. If confessions were written to summarize the faith, then the catechisms were written to teach the faith. The definition of catechism is question, fixed question and answer is used for instruction. So the Heidelberg Catechism, for instance, I, I mentioned this in passing already, paired with the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort, this is known as the Three Forms of Unity. The Heidelberg's biggest influence was a university professor by the name of Zacharias Ursinus, and he desired a resource to teach the faith, to, to teach doctrine to his students. So this catechism was constructed out of that desire. The Presbyterians, paired with the Westminster Confession of Faith, have the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. The Larger contains 196 questions, the Shorter 107, covering a, a myriad of different topics, ranging from what is prayer to how is the Word of God made effectual to salvation. These are just absolutely treasure fields for the church. They use as, as few words as possible, but as many that are necessary to teach what the Bible teaches. I'd actually venture to guess that, that the majority of people here tonight, maybe not the majority, but certainly a good portion of you, would at least know one of the questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question and answer number one. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Raise your hand if you knew that. See, almost the majority of you. Well, only 106 more and you have that puppy memorized. I joke, but it is, it's plenty possible. I remember back a number of years ago, I went to visit a friend in California, and after dinner, kids gathered around the couch and began reciting their catechism questions. Started when they were 9 and 11, but by the time they were 11 and 13, had the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism memorized word for word. This is not uncommon in Presbyterian circles. And I think that we Baptists would be well served to take some notes. I think it was Dr. Joel Beakey who once said he would rather take a well-catechized child over your average, run-of-the-mill, evangelical pastor of the 21st century when it comes to a robust understanding of the study of God. Now, obviously, thank the Lord that that's not the case here at Bethany, but I can think of some churches pretty darn close where I'd rather take the kid. I remember being just tremendously impacted by that visit to California. Just the love for doctrine and theology that that family had. I remember coming home and being like, babe, we, we got to find a Baptist catechism. Is there such a thing? As a matter of fact, there is. 
There are two that I want to highlight specifically here this evening. First, the Baptist Catechism, sometimes referred to as Keech's Catechism. Our Baptist fathers began working on this at the General Assembly in London in 1693. And this is what Dr. James Renahan has to say in regard to this catechism. For those familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Baptist edition will be immediately recognizable. With only minor alterations to the doctrine of baptism, it provides a wonderful method by which parents, children, teachers, and students may learn, memorize, and live out Christian doctrine. It is a great joy to join together with our fathers in the faith and recite together the deep truths of our common doctrinal heritage. In this way, we may fulfill the apostolic calling to contend for the faith once for all delivered. Brethren, please, if you don't have one already, add a copy of this to your theological library. You will be significantly benefited by it. Secondly, the Baptist not only reworked the Westminster to have Baptist distinctives, but the Heidelberg as well. In 1680, one of the signatories of the Second London Confession, Hercules Collins, constructed a catechism that essentially is word for word of the Heidelberg, but with Baptist distinctives. It's called an Orthodox Catechism. This, too, an absolute gem of a resource for us. I would strongly encourage you to wade through the content of an Orthodox Catechism. Now, there certainly are others uh, worth our time, but this hopefully gives us a bit of an introduction. Lord willing has wet the proverbial palate in regard to historic summaries of the Christian faith. I want to transition now under our third heading and spend the remainder of our time seeking to apply this to everyday life. Asking questions like, why does this matter? What's at stake? How might I benefit? I want to first deal with some common objections that are often used in regards to creeds and confessions and catechisms. These are things that I think are, are used uh, really to defend against their use in the life of the church. Concerns, if, if we can call them that, that, that maybe some of us have heard before or maybe even have had ourselves. I, I know I certainly had to wrestle through some of this myself. And so if that is you, I pray that this is ultimately an encouragement to you. First, when it comes to creeds, it is often said, no creed but the Bible. Have you heard this? No creed but the Bible? If we're being super charitable, which we obviously should be, then we have to give credit where credit is due because when most folks deploy this rebuttal, it usually comes from an honest commitment to the authority of Scripture, which we, of course, tip our hat to. But the problem is, is that most people who who love the phrase, no creed but the Bible, are, are confusing sola scriptura with solo scriptura. Sola scriptura is a commitment to the authority of scripture alone, but solo scriptura means the Bible is the only useful thing in the life of the church. They're confusing the Bible alone with the Bible only. Listen to one theologian here. This is extremely helpful. It's a, it's a lengthy quote, so you've got to bear with me, but this is gold. It is important, quote, it is important to note that the reformers had held to sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. Solo Scriptura advocates a radical individualism that rejects the church, creeds, confessions, and tradition as having any authority while embracing private judgment above all else. This view radicalizes the Protestant ethic and undermines it. Such an approach finds no credence in the teaching of the Reformers or the early church. Conversely, the Reformers taught the Apostles' Creed and stood upon the truths articulated at Chalcedon and Nicaea. 
Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Henry Bollinger, all viewed an anti-credal and anti-confessional theology as anti-Christian. None of them, none of the Protestant reformers advocated solo scriptura. But on the other hand, they were all fierce advocates of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura acknowledges, and this is key here, you got to catch this. Sola scriptura acknowledges the authority of the church and its tradition, including creeds and confessions, but always as subordinate to and only when they agree with the scriptures. R.C. Sproul is, is helpful here too. Although tradition does not rule our interpretation, it does guide it. If upon reading a particular passage, you have come up with an interpretation that has escaped the notice of every Christian for 2,000 years, or has been championed by universally recognized heretics, chances are pretty good you had better abandon your interpretation. Orthodox confessions and creeds articulate the faith in comprehensive ways and provide important boundaries for identifying what the scriptures teach. I want to put a graphic on the screen This graphic, I think, displays beautifully the benefit of creeds and confessions as well as the potential danger of no creed but the Bible. Brethren, again, the Bible is our foundation. The Bible is our lone authority. But the creeds and confessions protect us. They act as guardrails for us lest we wander off the beaten path. They keep us within the bounds of orthodoxy. You see, man alone on a deserted island with only his Bible is a recipe for a very dangerous man. There is absolutely no biblical or historical ground to stand on when it comes to no creed but the Bible. But there's also really no logical ground to stand on either because when you think about it logically, some may claim no creed but the Bible, but where did they get that? Is that from the Bible? Is, is, that, is that a Bible verse? Or is that a summary of what they believe the Bible teaches? You see, no creed, but the Bible is a creed. But it's not a very good one. Next, no creed, but the Bible is an objection of the historical creeds. When it comes to confessions, a popular objection is that confessions are divisive. Confessions are contentious. Why would you want to divide the body? Who cares if there's some difference of belief? We want to cast a wide theological net and everyone is welcome within. Why why don't we just be concerned about the essentials? If something's a gospel issue, then fine. But if it's a secondary or or tertiary issue, then then why bother? Let's have a tight grip on the close-handed issues and and a loose and open-handed grip on the others. Let's, Let's major on the major and minor on the minors. To which I think the proper response is to go back to the text. Where does Jude say that we only are to contend for the essentials? Does he say only contend for for key doctrine? Only be concerned for contending for the majors, but but the minors are less important? Is that faithful to the text? God is true. God is truth. All truth reflects the nature and character of God. It's his very essence. Is only some of that important? Confessions don't divide, they unite. How unifying is it to link arms with the learned and studied brothers and sisters who have gone before us rather than reinvent the wheel for ourselves? 
There's a story here that Benjamin Warfield told. Uh, during the Civil War period, he's visiting a new city, and he was in his room studying the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and he wanted to know just how widespread and far fe- far-reaching the influence was. And so he engaged in a little self-experiment and, and went outside to the streets that he had never walked before in a brand new city. And the first person that he met on the sidewalk, he stopped and asked, what is the chief end of man? To which the soldier replied without missing a beat, well, of course, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I mean, how cool is that? How unifying is that? That's not divisive. Imagine that today, how cool it would be if I was able to to stroll the streets of Chicago and just yell out, how many gods are there? And someone from the other block says, one. And I yell, and how many persons does this one God exist? And they yell, three. And I say, what are their names? And they say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, how cool would that be? Picture the unity. Some people are jerks. Some people do more harm than good and cause division. Sometimes I'm one of them. But again, take the water, leave the baby. I imagine that that Warfield, and, and I don't say this lightly, I imagine he got a glimpse of heaven that day. When the church is united with one voice, one faith around the throne. By the way, how many gods are there and how many persons does this one God exist and what are their names are questions 12, 13, and 14 of a catechism called Milk for Little Ones that my four and five-year-old are going through. So I know I'm making a lot of recommendations, but that one couldn't go unmentioned, especially if you have younger kids. you got to check it out. But speaking of catechizing young children, this leads us to our final objection. Catechizing is equivalent to brainwashing. Why would you force that down your child's throat? It's like a dictatorship. Don't you want them to own their own faith? These are questions that I've gotten from people very close to me, family members, who think me catechizing my children is harmful to them. But in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. I catechize my children because I love them. I catechize my children because I so desperately want them to reach out to Christ in faith and trust him with their lives. I catechize my children because more than sons, I long to call them brothers. I catechize my children because my days with them are numbered. And I can think of no better thing than to gather my children to stand on the shoulders of theological giants as I plead with the Holy Spirit to grab a hold of their heart as I'm teaching them how to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the fruit has been remarkable. Even at such young ages, there are countless times that one of my boys will be wrestling through something in life and remember his catechism and answer his own question. Just the other night, Knox was crying and and laying in bed trying to sleep, and I walked in, and I said, what's wrong, buddy? He said, Dad, I'm scared. I said, Knox, where is God? He said, everywhere. I said, can you see God? Before he began to answer, he got a big smile on his face. He said, no, but he sees me. Questions 8 and 9. Historical truth that comforted my son to sleep. This past March, our two-year-old son, RJ, was on life support. And we were pretty sure he wasn't going to make it. I remember sitting in the chair in the gathering room. I remember the direction the chair was facing. No one else in the room. I felt so lost. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how I was going to pull myself out of the chair, 
let alone lead my family through a tragedy like this. And then it dawned on me exactly where to turn. You see, as a pastor, I've walked many people through pain and trials and the suffering of life. And one of my favorite places to turn them to is Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. And I knew that in that moment, it was my turn. It was my turn to link arms with the thousands upon thousands who have gone before me, many like me, stuck in the valley, feeling hopeless, searching for truth. So I grabbed my Bible and I turned to the back where there's an appendix of many of the Reformed confessions and catechisms. And as the tears dripped onto the pages, I read these words. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, has set me free from the tyranny of the devil, watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Because Christian doctrine doesn't change, through the historic catechism, I was brought into conversation with Christians of the past, and overwhelmed with comfort by the same God, knowing that he does not change. He's immutable, and his providence is always for my own good. Brethren, might we with grace and boldness, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the ability to gather free of persecution to worship you. What a blessing this day that you have made has been. We are grateful that You've saved us in Christ. We know that Jesus deserved other than what he received in order that we might receive other than what we deserved. God, as we read the scriptures, as as we study the historic creeds and confessions, might our love for Christ continue to grow? Might we cherish Christ above all as he, by the Spirit, makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.